Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Miser, moderator of these forums and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation, an exciting place to be. Key issues in ethical perspective. That continues to be our agenda. Voices of conscience addressing issues in ethical perspective continue to be our guest. The guest voice today is that of Ellen Goodman of the Boston Globe, whose column is syndicated and widely read across the country. She is an author. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Niceties aside, I think you will agree that the highest compliment you can pay a speaker is to ask the person to come back. In Westminster's five years of presenting these forums, this is our fifth year, Ms. Goodman is the first person we have hosted a second time. I remember her standing here and saying, I never spoke before so much stained glass in my life. There aren't many speakers for whom we would accept a title so broad-gauged as Goodman at Large. But in her case, it's perfect. It permits her to focus where she senses the issue to be today, something her columns have taught us that she does with clarity, compassion, tenacity. Here I feel that it is important, appropriate, indeed necessary, to say that a gift in honor of the Minnesota Women's Fund has occasioned Ms. Goodman's appearance here today. The Minnesota... The Minnesota Women's Fund is the first such fund in the United States. It is designed such that its grants, as guided by the Minneapolis Foundation, act as a catalyst to promote change in the distribution of resources to assure that the needs of women and girls living in this state are more adequately addressed. The fund's intent, in a word, is to deal squarely with the issue of the feminization of poverty. You will agree, I know, that it is highly appropriate that Ellen Goodman join us in honoring this effort. Well, Ellen, I think I'll not keep you or this eager audience waiting any longer. Welcome back. Well, I'm still intimidated by this room. <laughs> and if any of you in the choir would like to break into a chorus of hallelujahs at any time, <laughs> feel free. I guess I am the only one who comes back here every four years who isn't running for office. <laughs> I also promise I won't be talking about politics and religion. Um, in fact, I did think a great deal about coming back here. This is my first recurrent performance. And your invitation made me focus a little bit on the past five years of change, 
particularly on this thing that we call the women's movement. Well, what has changed the most since I last met with all of you? Several things. Five years ago, we expected DRA to pass. But five years ago, we did not expect to see a woman on the national ticket. Jerry Ferraro was a first-term congresswoman. At a more philosophical level, four years ago, we were still talking about male and female roles. Now we are more likely to be talking about male and female values. Five years ago, most of us defined equality still as getting what men have. Now we have a much more complex agenda. Five years ago, we talked about new choices for women as if there were a smorgasbord of options. Now we talk about choices as conflicts. But most importantly, if I'm to chronicle change, which is one of my jobs, the most important event of this time has been the renewed linkage between the women, movement for women's equality and the movement for peace. So today, in my role as an observer of society, every journalist is that, I want to talk a little bit about this intriguing linkage and how it relates to change and what it may mean for the next four or five years. We do meet here this afternoon, as many of us have feared a slowdown in the social progress of women toward equality. But we also meet here, I think, as the alarm about nuclear war has grown ahead of our understanding about how to make peace. We are breaking through at last, in these last few years, the psychic numbness of the past decades about the destruction of the world. Well, I have always had a sense that there is a special and complex relationship between these items, between the women's rights movement and the peace movement, between the success of women's rights and the success of peacemaking. It's been true, certainly, throughout our history. The earliest women's peace movements were founded on a high following the passage of suffrage, which in turn followed the devastation of World War I. One of the ideals behind the suffrage movement was that if women voted, we could make an enormous difference. We would bring a special set of values to the public policy world. We would do no less than change the world. <laughs> in fact, the very first speech made to the League of Women Voters in 1921 by the suffragist and League founder, Carrie Chapman Catt, was an impassioned plea to work for peace. Well, I don't think it was a coincidence that the two dominant concerns of women were equal rights and peace. I think that these two ideals were then and are today inseparable, interwoven into the value system of women. There is, I think, an inexorable relationship between the status of women and cooperation to prevent war. And let me talk a little bit this afternoon about this relationship. In the past 15 years, there has been enormous change in women's lives in this thing we call the women's movement. If we think of it particularly literally as the movement of women from one life pattern to many, and especially, I suppose, the women, movement of women into the workforce. Every one of us here today, men and women, have been a part of that change our lives, the way we think about ourselves and each other, have all been affected. Well, as a journalist, I have chronicled this, and as a woman and mother, I have been a part of it. I have also had a somewhat perverse pleasure in observing not only the realities about how women change, but the myths. I have chronicled them in an amused and, forgive me, a sometimes cynical way. 
When I was here last, I told you something about the changing myths about women, not the realities, but the myths. For those of you who have forgotten, I grew up in an era under the myth of supermom. A supermom, as many of you know from my earlier visit, she was the woman who used to send her children to school with pumpkin-shaped sandwiches, with raisin eyes, and carrot teeth. <laughs> and she, she always, her children always had homemade Halloween costumes. And she always had something loving in the oven. And she was the woman who was always nurturing, always caring, always dressed in an apron. Well, she was, I think, my generation's, well, she was my generation's way of feeling guilty. Well, I have now been a grown-up for some time under a new myth, the shadow of Superwoman. And I have been asked to update Superwoman for all of you who have not heard what has happened to her in the past four years. The new improved version of Superwoman, as she is now offered to all of the women and men here as a viable role model by the media, a day in her life runs something like this. Uh, Superwoman now gets up in the morning and wakes her 2.3 children. She then goes downstairs where she feeds them a grade A nutritional breakfast, which they eat. <laughs> Her children then go off to school forgetting nothing. And she goes upstairs and gets into her $600 Ann Klein suit and goes off to her $50,000 a year job doing work which is creative but socially useful. <laughs> After work and of course her six mile run, <laughs> an addition of the 80s, <laughs> She goes home to spend a wonderful hour interrelating with the children because, after all, it isn't the quantity of time, it's the quality of time. <laughs> after that hour, she goes into the kitchen where she creates a Julia Child gourmet dinner. The family sits around the dining room table discussing the checks and balances of the United States government system. Her children then go to bed and she and her husband have time for their meaningful relationship after which they, too, go to bed where she is multi-orgasmic until midnight. <laughs> well, tomorrow is another day, you know. So. Well, I am glad she sounds so familiar, familiar to all of you. I've learned in following this myth over the past five years that there is really a serious side to the Superwoman mythology. Superwoman is the woman who has changed without changing society enough, without changing men enough. Superwoman is the socially useful myth that women can have it all only if they can do it all. She is also, I think, the perfect example of the lopsided nature of this change, and that is really the first half of this story about where we are today in the push for both equality and peace. In the past decade and a half, certainly in the past five years, change has indeed been lopsided. More women have taken on the old male roles than men have taken on the old female roles. We are, in fact, right now carrying a double burden. In another way, change has been lopsided because many of us, certainly professional women, powerful women, political women, have had much more success 
at getting into the male world than at changing that world. It is easier to become a partner in a law firm than to change the way partners are chosen. It is easier to go into politics than to change the political system. We've had much more success in adapting to male values than in getting men to adapt female values. It has been much easier to win equal access to the values of achievement, power, success, competition, than to win equal time for the values of caretaking, nurturing, cooperation. I've seen it, and you've seen it. My mother's generation was kept out, literally, kept out of the professions, kept out of the top jobs. My generation has opened many more doors. Now, at least young, educated women have a shot at getting into the structure, but under conditions. They can get in as long as they adapt the values of that structure, as long as they dress for success, as long as they subscribe to the male life patterns, as long as they, too, put work above family life. They can make it now, but it is still a man's world. Well, there are risks in any period of change, and the risk for us in this change is that we could get stuck when it is so uneven, when we are only halfway there. We have begun opening the structure to women, but we haven't fully opened the structure to our values. As an observer of this social change, I sometimes wonder whether women haven't won equal responsibilities before we've won equal rights. You can see this lopsidedness in the divorce courts where many a 40-year-old woman with a clerical job is described as independent. You can also hear it in the lingering argument over drafting women. Some of that resistance in the draft issue did come from hawks, but some also came from women who wondered whether their daughters should have the equal responsibility to be cannon fodder without the equal right to make military policy. Surely in our concern over the uneven pace of change, there has emerged a sense that war has been a game that largely men played, and a desire that in our own movement toward equality, women hold on to their own values. Women don't want everything that men have, and we should be careful not to buy into the male value system to the degree that we not only dress for success, but dress for combat while men alone are still writing the dress codes. For over a hundred years, there has been this duality in the feminist movement. We want access to the male world, but we don't necessarily approve of all of the ways that it works. We want to maintain the traditional female values of nurturing and yet also gain power. We wonder whether in the process of making it, we'll forget what we wanted to make it for. Today's men and women haven't avoided the age-old question, if I am not for myself, who shall be for me? If I am for myself alone, who am I? Well, during the Carter administration, I visited once with a woman in the Pentagon who lauded all the progress made for women in that building. At the end of our time together, I left with the eerie sensation that her vision of equality would have one man and one woman side by side with fingers on the buttons. This is not, <laughs> I hasten to say, what most of us want. Our concern for peace is intricately related with the second half of this movement for equality, a movement toward equality for women's values. Now, I don't have to give this group a refresher course on Reagan and women. 
His policies are not only, in my view, anti-female, they are anti-female values. Less for caretaking, more for war. Less for nurturing, more for destruction. It's no surprise, it's no surprise that an anti-woman policy is a pro-military policy, that a pro-military policy is anti-female. I think it comes with a certain piece of territory. In Dallas in August, I attended the Eagle Forum luncheon and fashion show. Heaven help me. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, I wasn't surprised, quite frankly, to find that the Republican delegates who were welcomed to Phyllis Schlafly's fashion show were also handed out stickers that read High Frontier, the Reagan name for the Space Wars program, the Star Wars program. The Star Wars program is, I think, in some fascinating ways, an example of a particular traditional psychology. I don't, for example, dispute Reagan's genuine desire to find a way to protect the country from annihilation. What is fascinating, though, is his instinctive preference for a technological fix. His preference for some fantastic hardware over the software of cooperation communication, negotiation. I don't think it's an accident, but rather part of a value system that puts faith in technology rather than in people. His administration is, I believe, full of people who know more about high tech than about talk. The suffragists, <clears throat> what is our job then to try to, excuse me, the dust in this foundation. <laughs> I am, however, relieved they're pouring concrete under us even as we speak. <coughs> what is our job then to write the kind of lopsidedness that I have talked about? Because I think in some ways our survival depends on this. Well, the suffragists thought that with the vote and their special virtue, <laughs> women would transform the world. Women would bring social justice and peace. Well, it didn't happen. For one thing, women are not as virtuous as the 19th century would make us believe. For another thing, suffrage didn't make women as independent as we thought. In the first presidential election after suffrage, only a third of women voted. In subsequent national elections, women voted very much the way men did. It has taken almost 60 years of change in the world, change in our self-image, change in our sense of personal power to group around a political base to really begin to use the vote. And if I read it right, we are just now at the brink of realizing some of this power and being able to use it for women's rights issues, for social issues, concerns, and I hope eventually for peace. There has emerged now something you have all heard about all year called the women's vote. We are beginning to see what the suffragists expected all along, a distinctive and very real vote among women along the lines of their own values. Well, since I last met with you, we have coined the name for a piece of political turf called the gender gap. The gender gap is real and is based around women's concerns about women's rights, about fairness, and about nuclear war. But in the greater sense, I think we can lump all of these things together 
under this heading of values. In the 19th century, the family was the haven in the heartless world. All the values of womanliness, nurturing, sustaining life, peace were kept at home. Women were given these standards to hold at home, while men were allowed to largely ignore them in the tough arena of public life. Our double standard then separated not only male from female, home from politics, private life from public life, but also war from peace. As early as the mid-70s, under the influence of the women's movement, we could begin to see women's opinions diverging in many of the polls for men. Perhaps as we entered the workforce, we gained confidence in our own instincts. Perhaps we no longer looked up to men as omniscient. There is, I am afraid, nothing like working side by side with men to break the myth of omniscience. <laughs> Well, I think on the peace issue, the gap is easiest to chronicle. Since World War II, women have been consistently less supportive of war for whatever reasons, his cultural, historical, because of motherhood or because of cynicism about glory. Nonviolent attitudes are more pervasive among women. Maybe it is because our traditional business has been raising children. Maybe women don't want to see their business killed. I've always had qualms about claiming higher virtue for women, and I have made any number of generalizations today, which I am sure I will be called on. I don't want to boast of some higher morality for all women. We all know women as leaders, prime ministers, wives, and mothers who are ardent warmongers. Prime Minister Thatcher is no less wooden-headed than her Argentine opponent or Jean Kirkpatrick. <laughs> Nor do I want to deny the men who, see, who ha share the same values of caretaking and peacemaking. But we are still talking about a statistically significant difference. The question is how we use that difference, how we make our values feel, felt. The clearest visual image that I carry of nuclear disarmament talks is, a, is one of battalions of pinstriped men on the inside and women protesting on the outside. For a long time, women have been excluded and have excluded themselves. We don't want to play with their missiles anyway. Too many women, I think, have taken the moral high ground on this issue and left the buttons and the budgets and the bargaining in the hands of men. Big toys for big boys, we say disparagingly. War is a game that men play, like Sunday afternoon football, and we never learn the rules. Well, Reagan came to office talking about such wonderful events as limited nuclear war, the survivability of nuclear war, the evil empire. I think there is now certainly here a much greater recognition that women can't drive away from the scene comforted by a bumper sticker that reads another mother for peace. We have to learn the rules, get into the political debate, carrying our own sense of values along with us. Women have come along far enough that they are no longer bamboozled by the notion that defense is an, ex an issue for experts alone, that daddy knows best, that the Pentagon will take care of us. We live now in the era of the half-hour war, and we have come a long way. 
more and more. Men and women subscribe to the philosophy written on my favorite feminist button, question authority. We need to demystify the Pentagon still. We need facts and figures from people we trust. And in the past four, five years, women have joined, have gone on to the cutting edge of this issue in citizens groups, in founding the freeze, in conferences and organizations. At the same time, I would hope that women would remember how tied in this peace movement is to the movement for women's equality. The urgency of this cause commands attention. Measured against nuclear war, everything else seems quite trivial. Yet the fact is that peace depends in part, I believe, on the continued rise of equality of women and our ability to continue engaging men in our views. Way back at the brink of World War II, Virginia Woolf wrote an essay in response to three requests for contributions. This is a great contribution season for all of you, so I'm sure it will be familiar. She was asked for a guinea from a peace organization, a guinea from an organization for women's education, and a guinea from an organization for women's work. The essay that she wrote was in the form of an answer, a, the form of a letter to this man who asked her essentially, how do we stop war? And her complex and quite brilliant answer interwove the agendas, the need for arousal and equality of all women, as she put it, before women can help stop war. She wrote finally to the man, and I quote her, the answer to your question must be that we can best help you to prevent war, not by repeating your words and following your methods, but by finding new words and creating new methods. Well, as Americans, we still need new words and new methods. We still need to promote values that put childcare before MX missiles, love before glory, and the urge to survive above the urge to fight. I believe that women have to become equals before their voices will be heard and their values will be heard. Well, we are halfway there. We have to be sure that we don't get stuck in this transition, men and women stuck at this moment, stuck with lopsided change, stuck with the double burden, stuck with the ability of women to make it in a man's world, stuck with the right to be equal victims in a war. I don't think, I think it is our chance really to make a difference. It's time, I think, to make our own policy, to hold on to our own values, stake out the turf of equality, justice, and most of all, peace. I don't have any illusions. I don't think that this agenda is a very easy one. It is far more than another five-year plan. In fact, I think I will close my speech this afternoon the same way I closed it five years ago, when it was Jack Kerouac, the Beat Generation poet, who offered perhaps the best motto for social change in the 80s, when he said, walking on water wasn't built in a day. Thank you. Thank you for putting the key issue in ethical perspective. Do be casting, passing your questions to the aisles that the uh, deacons and ushers might pick them up and bring them forward.
While that is happening, Ms. Goodman, perhaps you'd be willing to return to the pulpit. Let me say that uh, you've occupied my desk in my study and the place where I usually hold forth, and I'm delighted that you've done both and hope you'll do it often. I'm not taking over, though, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Love having you in both places. It's intimidating to speak on top of a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it the word of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I must just as a note the top of today's portion I believe yes. says is from Ezekiel it reads by the parable of a boiling pot and the other said eschewed the destruction of Jerusalem oh, <laughs> which <laughs> intimidated me even more but <laughs> oh dear I read your article for today in the morning paper and while we're waiting for other questions to come forward uh, my attention was riveted by the last paragraph. There is one other thing that many of the young share with this particular elder, meaning yourself. No. No? Meaning the president. Oh, <laughs> all right. All right, I can see that you're, yeah, I, I apologize. They are both unencumbered by facts and untethered by history. You want to, would you care to elaborate on that? I said I wasn't going to mix politics and religion. It's inevitable. <laughs> um, I was trying to talk about some of, the some of the reasons why the young were identifying with the president, and then I did close on that nasty note. <laughs> but I do certainly have a sense that this president has a, just a tremendously weak sense of history. Um, and a profound disregard for facts. I mean, I don't mean that he lies. I mean that he's quite uninterested in facts. Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the problems, I, and this is true not only for him, but for other men uh, um, and for other women in the, in the administration, is that the historical model at least particularly on the peace issue, is World War II. You know, they, sort of, they, they sort of think of every potential war as us versus the encroaching, encroaching Germans or, what, uh, or uh, Japanese, the aggressors. And um, where, in my sense, is the more appropriate model for the situation that we could get into next would be World War I, which, is, was, a situ which was a war in which everybody kind of dribbled and challenged each other uh, and dared each other into. Thank you. Here's a question that's come forward. This year we're hearing a great deal about the relationship between religion and politics. In your opinion, what is the best way for these two important parts of our lives to inform each other? I think as individuals we are all in, uh, we are all our value system comes out of a combination of our religious beliefs and our political ones, that they're all tied up as individuals. What we're talking about, though, is whether a candidate uh, should be, whether a, a, a religious person should literally endorse candidates and whether they should make a litmus test on certain issues. This year, I think what most of it does is hide a political agenda. When you look at um, when you look at what some of the people on the religious right are doing, they have a very clear uh, political agenda. 
And the big issue has also been the abortion issue. Um, the Catholic hierarchy in particular, but not exclusively, I believe have been freaked out by Geraldine Ferraro's candidacy. I can't think of another way except to go to my daughter's vocabulary <laughs> to describe it. <laughs> um, that the notion that a woman could go to church on Sunday and then go to and, and talk pro-choice on Monday is just a prime example of the fact that the church has lost control over its women and has lost control over its women. <laughs> it's lost control over its women on the birth control issue as well as on uh, abortion and those are and those are connected. And she has become a symbol and taken all the heat, and taken all the heat particularly from, from uh, uh, Bishop O'Connor, who has served most of his religious life in the military. <laughs> I had to get it in. <laughs> One question leads to another. If we live in a world with all male values, challengeable in brackets, which... Highly. Hmm? It's highly challengeable, yeah, right? Yeah. Which of those values are most important to be changed? Oh, I thought you... Which are most important to sustain? I thought that's how the question... Um, because I think that we each need something uh, from each other. But if... if and, and you have... I ha am talking in generalities when I label male and female values. It's hard not to talk without talking in generalities. And I realize the degree to which we adhere to different sets. But the one that seems to me that, that is the m most important to change is the value that settles things by conflict. Um, whether that conflict is uh, strictly competitiveness um, that spills over from the sporting field to our family lives, or whether it is in its ultimate form conflict between nations. On a personal card, describe Superwoman in five more years. <laughs> I hope <laughs> that in five more years, um, uh, there is no Superwoman. That what we will have is two people per family, or more, since I generally think that the number of adults in any household should equal the number of children. Or <laughs> and I, I would hope that Superwoman would be replaced by a vast support system that included not only significant, serious, not help, but sharing from husbands and fathers, but also help from the larger society. Uh, the big issue, as far as I can see it, is still childcare, um, that we have not at all resolved the question, who will take care of the children, that we just keep turning it back to individual families in one way or another. Each family is to solve this problem on his own. Um, and I think that if we have something that would make the majority of um, women in this country who are, after all, employed more secure in their jobs and in their lives and m families feel more comfortable, would be a serious, helpful, high-quality childcare system. I'm not talking about necessarily federal daycare or anything else, but some system by which we could get um, dependable childcare. 
every woman here who has ever worked with small children knows how thin the thread is that holds you to your jaw. Um, and that thread is often one other woman or perhaps one other funding for a daycare center. And it's extremely fragile in that sense. And we have to build webs. I was shocked, for example, one of my the stories that really shocked me this year, as everybody else, were the sex abuse cases in child care centers, which immediately, to some, set up a wave of, hey, this is just exactly why daycare centers are bad for families. And indeed, there was one state legislator, I think in the, a Midwestern state, I can't remember exactly where, I have it written down, who wrote to the parent of a abused child suggesting that this is why she should have stayed at home. It wouldn't have happened had she been at home. So there is, yes, he won the Charmer of the Year Award. <laughs> the, um, but I think that that is still, to eliminate Superwoman is to get all kinds of other supports. Then I do have other fantasies, I don't want to go on too long, but I do have other fantasies about how to help Superwoman issue, which is to bring food to the house, to have repair people who actually come in the evening and morning and weekends. <laughs> who don't say, oh, I'll be there on alternate Thursdays between 9 and 3, just wait, <laughs> you know, things like that. Another question. The Minnesota Women's Fund has been credited, or created rather, because it is felt that women's programs get a small, a very small share of the funding dollar. I think the uh, literature suggests 2%. Do you believe this is so? That's the question in the card, and... Uh, if it's so, and I gather it's established, uh, why so? Well, if women's programs have had very poor funding, it's because traditionally women have made the cookies for the bake sales instead of making policy. You know, for years and years and years, women who volunteered, you know, licked stamps and did, and, and did ma make the baked goods for the sale, uh, and then turned over this money in a... <laughs> in a, a naive, almost, way, uh, and never really followed through to see where that money was going. And my sense is that every woman who gives a dollar to anything should know, and every man who gives a dollar to everything should know whether that was going to be dispersed in a fair, fair and equitable way. And I think that that's beginning to happen. Certainly, women who are professional volunteers now are much more conscious of uh, equitable distribution. Next comment or question. The media has spent a great deal of time on the question, who won the debates? That seems to be a particularly masculine question. <laughs> Why, what might be a women, woman's perspective on the presidential debates? My favorite comment on that came from after the second debate where I actually heard Dan Rather say that Reagan scored on two uses of humor. <laughs> it's, I thought, what? <laughs> that was absolutely appalling. Well, I think that the debate format is not one that the joint press conference format is not one that I find tremendously useful. I think it would have been lovely, in this case, quite the opposite, to have actually seen them confront each other and talk about an issue on and on and on. The notion that we're too stupid and too bored to be able to sit through a Lincoln-Douglas debate is somewhat insulting. 
I think we could handle. I would love to have seen six hours. How will our political structures, institutions, and perceptions change because Jesse Jackson and Geraldine Farrar have been such strong, viable candidates? Well, I think that every time you let, this is not my novel thought, but every time you, a new group enters in, a lot of people identify with that new person and feel, feel that their options are opening up. I spent uh, two and a half days with the Farrar campaign, I guess three weeks ago, and um, as jaded a journalist as I might be after 20 ideas in the business, it was very striking to see the reactions, particularly of young women, to at rallies. I mean, it was a uh, very much of a Michael Jackson kind of syndrome, you know. Oh, she touched my hand, you know. Um, and uh, there were there was a very strong feeling about among also since I checked the crowds a little bit among also women who were not necessarily going to vote for the Mondale Ferraro ticket, which might not thrill the Mondale Ferraro people, but there was that same sense of opportunity and of identification and pleasure. And she said a couple of times that she was a surrogate for a lot of other women who were in there. And I think that that is true to a large extent. It's, it's, uh, it's just plain seeing. You know, it's like the line from Chorus Line, I can do that, I can do that. I must say that even watching the debates, there must have been in a negative way millions of people across America who said, I could do that. You know? <laughs> Here's a question that just surfaced. How do you think men who share our values uh, how do you think they can effectively promote equal power for women? Um, well, that's a kind of a really gigantic question. Um, I think in the home it's easy. Anybody who shares your values uh, hopefully also shares the housekeeping. And you both have a lot more time to do, uh, to pursue um, your, both your personal lives together and your professional lives, etc. That sounds like a... If all, let, let us all be good together. In a professional way, uh, if there are men at the top who are very open um, to these things, they will reconstruct the value system of the uh, corporation that you work for, for example. You know, think of all the tiny little things that would make differences in the lives of people with young families. Imagine if, for example, you didn't have to go to work when you were sick and then lie and stay home when your kids were sick. I mean, sort of just the tiny little differences if you had uh, sick days for children's sick days um, or, the, or a whole range if you, of differences that could be made in corporate policies to make them more supportive rather than undermining family lives. One of the dilemmas, though, that as I see it is that most of the men who share uh, women's values um, that are more likely also to share women's life patterns and are less likely to put all of their energy into success, are therefore less likely to get to the top of their corporation. The top of the corporation is therefore still largely run by the most traditional men with traditional wives who don't have any idea how the families 
work and don't have a whole lot of motivation to change that. I don't know if I explained that clearly, but it's what I'm, so, It's a real dilemma. Here's a different question. What do you say to the lonely men who need nurturing and caring and who are... <laughs> Don't you have any mothers? <laughs> Everybody needs nurturing and caring. Most of the women in this country suffer from a real lack of nurturing and caring. <laughs> Well, I'll give you the, the card to read the balance of it on the plane. <laughs> Could you address the issue of comparable worth? Somebody really want me to know. Um, comparable worth is very much a part of this lopsided change thing. I mean, if you have a system in which it is assumed that in order to get the same amount of money that men make, you have to do exactly the same jobs that men make. You're making a value assumption that those jobs are intrinsically worth more. Now, the re reality is not that the jobs are worth more, but they're, they're, they're given more because men are doing them. And we have to say, does a nurse have to become a truck driver in order to make a decent wage? You know, does a teacher have to, as in the Oregon case, I guess, become a uh, sanitary worker in order to get a, a, a higher wage? I mean, it's all insanity. If you're talking about restructuring and looking at things, looking at the value of things, what more logical place to begin than looking at the value of work? Not the value of work because a man does it or because a woman does it, but the intrinsic value. That's very tough. <laughs> but it is, I think, a good idealistic goal. And in some ways, it's pretty easy to do. It doesn't upset the, quote, market system, end quote. As, it has been as has been claimed by a lot of people, because a lot of the jobs are not in the market system. A lot of them are either controlled by um, government or by uh, union wages. And it seems to me that a lot of this could really be changed. And it's the only way to make change in women's wages uh, within the next two centuries. Do you think there is a chance for passing the ERA? Do I think there is a chance for passing the ERA? When? <laughs> my, my guess is that in 10 years it'll come up again, or less, hopefully. It'll come up again and it'll just breeze through. Is it going to happen within the next two years? No. No. Is it going to happen within the next four years? But it'll, it'll come up again. It's interesting because in some ways, when, the, when suffrage passed, the women all dispersed and thought that the work was all over. When ERA didn't pass, I think the women in this country had a sense of the forces out there that have yet to be confronted and still have the ERA as a unifying tool, women who don't necessarily agree on anything else. That is really the Pollyanna version, you know, seeking good news out of the bad news, but... <laughs> Is there a way to attain equality without being anti-male? Some of my best husbands are male. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I don't see a whole lot of it. I mean, I think there was some anti-male stuff, you know, sort of led by that a whole group of women who lived in lofts in lower Manhattan in the late 60s, you know. But the, the whole, I thought the whole anti-male thing had long, had long passed. We may have a lingering doubter among us. You talk about ideas, differences, and values, but TV news rarely, if ever, does. Is, is that crucial? And if so, what can be done about it? Well, TV news really does a lot. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not, you're dealing, I don't think that's where you really get, necessarily get discussions of values. I would settle on television news, at least, for discussions of issues, <laughs> frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was... Your, ne- your, next, uh, your next speaker will, will just <laughs> uh-huh. take me to task on that, I'm sure. <laughs> this year we are hearing a great deal about single-issue politics. What single issue do you consider to be the most important? Perhaps your, your main address answered that, but do you wish to... Sure, I don't think there is a whole lot else that, that matters as much as the peace issue for altogether obvious issues, reasons. Do you have thoughts about the increasing use of technology, especially computers, in all fields of education, and how will this affect women's advancement? Um, Well, I don't know that. My sense is that uh, a lot of schools have been oversold on computers, if that was part of the question, Um, but I don't really feel comfortable talking about that at any greater length. I think that in some ways computers have become the new technological fix, that instead of thinking about teaching, instead of paying teachers, we buy computers, which is again a kind of way of splitting apart the school experience. But um, I work on computers. Uh, every journalist does. I have one with me that's big as a bread bar, you know, that's the size of a, a briefcase. And uh, again, it's the question of who rules, who's in charge of the computer? Who's in charge? You were the computer. It's not. As a journalist, what is your goal or mission? What guides you? What are you? Satirist, cynic, historian, <laughs> editorialist, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> Well, uh, my goal is generally to finish both columns a week. <laughs> I mean, I think people do tend to, to have different ideas about what your, what your work is. My work is basically to produce 1,500 words a week, preferably in a coherent order, <laughs> um, and um, to do it within a certain amount of time and to get it. And you can, make a, you can do a lot in journalism, you can write well, you can write badly, you can, uh, but you can't write late. It's kind of... <laughs> Beyond that, I do think of myself probably as, as more of an observer. I don't have a 10-point agenda. Uh, I'm very interested in their newspapers in general do two things. They tell you what is going on and what it means. And I am in the what it means business. And that means that I have to figure out what it means, <laughs> which isn't always easy. Um, but very often I'll find something that is just hits me, that I just say, hmm, what's going on here? What's going on with this? 
and then I will spend my day at the typewriter trying to figure it out, which isn't as easy as it sounds. <laughs> what about your next book? I am doing another collection probably that fall. Good. I have in my files a fistful of your editorials, and indeed I have some quotes from your last uh, speech here. I'd like to just refer back to that speech briefly. This has not been the narcissistic me first decade. It has been the nobody else decade. We have been pushing back onto our own, onto self-reliance, onto self-discovery. Everybody has busily tried to figure out how to have it all by themselves. People are jogging instead of joining. They are into self-help instead of mutual help. I think we are beginning to realize that it's impossible to make our lives work in a vacuum. How are we doing on that agenda, would you judge? I wrote that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it, truer now than it was four years ago. In part, we have been pushed back to self-reliance, quote-unquote, self-reliance, uh, by the Reagan administration, which um, has what I would describe as, as a, uh, a warped view of independence, that everybody has to make it on their own, not just uh, can, not just wants to, uh, but has to, and that anybody who can't, tough. And that is a, a fairly unattractive uh, vision of um, what is going on. I tried to write what happens youth who I think are particularly prone to self-reliance since in many ways we do raise our children to be independent in the good sense of that word and then at 18 uh, in particular they go off filled with the sense that they do have to make it on their own and at this very pivotal time in their lives they are the most disconnected from family the most disconnected from any society except their own exact uh, peer group and I think inevitably the most self-centered, not always in a negative way, sometimes in a questing way, sometimes in a very interesting way, but I think there is a penchant for people, for young people, if they are not really helped or not really connected to older people, to not care. Um, to, they are at a unique period of their lives, which is what I tried to say in part why they were such passionate um, uh, partisans of the Reagan administration, they are at a unique period of their lives. They have just come up from being dependent themselves. Their parents are not in an age where they need caretaking. They're not, their parents are generally not senior citizens. They don't have children. They don't, you know, they're at a very unique period when almost the enormous proportion of our young people live alone, literally alone. And if what we want to do is create a sense of community among these people and to show the ways in which we are all connected, we've got to make some changes uh, in the way we deal with our young adults or adult young. I want to pose one final question to you. Before I do that, let me just remind the radio audience in particular that they, you, have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum emanating from Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis and that Ellen Goodman has been our speaker. 
I'm Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum. I have in my files marked the eighth day of October, but I don't know which year, an article by you entitled Competing as Friends, and it reads in part, eventually I think most of us have to learn this skill of competing as friends. In my own profession, people who widely and publicly disagree with each other's point of view in print ask about each other's children in private. Competing as friends, this lesson does have its emotional costs. It takes self-control to drain our confrontations of their personal venom. It also takes some understanding and some perspective to live with differences, even competition, without feeling personal conflict. I guess it takes a pro. I'm aware that even in this audience today, there are strongly differing opinions, and certainly in the congregation as I stand where you stand today, but on Sunday. Would you care to elaborate how we can live through this very tense, you know, uh, time pre-election and still come away as friends? <laughs> Don't talk politics. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 